Um, but I definitely think it's something that would be explored in the UK. The UK is certainly within the, the MOD, there is definitely a, a feeling of exploring the absolute possible. And I think there are some agreements between the Treasury and the UK that exist, uh, Treasury and uh, the MOD, sorry, that exist. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I apologize. I've taken the question deeper than it was probably intended, but it's part of a, a bit of a more of a strategic outlook for the UK, if that makes sense. Understood. What do you think um, Great Britain will do tomorrow in the meeting? How do you think it will lead that merry down? Besides the planned assassination of Nicholas Sturgeon, um, I think the UK will be discussing. <laughs> um, I, I think the UK will be um, discussing. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. That really was a joke. It was very unprofessional. Um, uh, of course, no, no, it's completely fine. We, we, we had the discussion about the, the three main bad fish, you know, the, the fish stings from the head and we said three bad fish, salmon, sturgeon and shallots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I'm going to print that out and put it on my wall in the office. Um, but uh, I, think the, I think the UK will be using its influence to vastly sort of pressure. Um, you know, especially I think what Zelensky said, you know, he gave a speech recently and he talked a lot about the UK's role and what's been going on. And he said the UK has been uh, the biggest promoter of sending heavy weaponry behind the doors to Ukraine. I think the UK will continue to do that. I think the UK will continue to talk to our allies and see about what we can offer them so they can let go of equipment and stuff like this. Uh, the UK does have the capability to backfill certain pieces of equipment, not across the board. We can't do it like the Americans can, but we can certainly do it to an extent. And I think... Areas like that will be very much of UK concern. I think areas of intelligence will also be huge for the UK. Um, the UK has a world beat intelligence service, and I think that will be very much highlighted, as it always is highlighted when we meet with our NATO, NATO partners and uh, friends. Um, so areas like that, and I think there'll be discussions about training. Obviously, there'll be discussions about the, um, the MLRS and HIMARS and systems like this. And yeah, I think it will just be further discussion and further ensuring that the wheels are in motion, ensuring that everything's well oiled and ensure that we're all headed in the right direction. And, you know, I think there'll also be backroom discussions, you know, with countries that are a bit more reluctant, which will probably go to the sense of getting the fucking boat and start rowing in this direction. Um, you know, and I think that has been more of that. And I think that's why we've seen in areas dams breaking, but also because of public pressure. As good as you said it, as well as you formed that, it still does not say one thing. And the one thing we're all interested in, do you think that Great Britain and North America will take a stand tomorrow to force the Germans to release their consent to other nations conveying the diesel-powered main battle tanks and the recce tanks German manufacturers have produced in the past? I think there will definitely be conversations about that. I'm not aware of a public stance that will be taken. Um, but, you know, I get, get, I don't want to get too much drawn into this. It's a bit improper of my position to speak about sort of internal of course, discussions. Yeah. So um, all I would say is just wait to the meeting. You know, I can give the general ethos of what the UK position is, you know, but I don't want to. Because there's obviously conversations that circulate all the time within the MOD and it's, it's, it would be improper for me to. No, no, of course. I didn't mean to, do, to ask for that. I apologize. I did not mean to push you to, to that end. My point is that it seems to me 
that there is from the outside looking in and from conversations I've had in recent two weeks, that the, the level of patience and tolerance for the delays and the prevarication, the procrastination, or in short, the utter bullshit coming out of Berlin has worn so thin that a thin layer of paper would be a mountain compared to that. There seems to be such level of disenchantment with Mr. Scholz that um, I think the pressure will be uh, excessive tomorrow. That's at least what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Like, there's, there is mountain pressure. And you don't even need to look to the UK and the US for that. You know, you just need to look at, you know, people like uh, the Estonian prime minister, you know, the uh, leadership out of Poland, you know, within their own EU countries. You know, people are getting sick of the shit, sick of the delaying and the dithering. Uh, but there is mountain pressure. You are absolutely right. And it is amazing. I think I gave the anecdote before what a thin piece of paper on a desk in a very short meeting can do. And we may see something like that. I so sincerely hope so. You have no idea. For the love of God and the defense of Ukraine and freedom in Europe, I hope so dearly. I think we have a bunch of questions. Uh, let's go to Raver Yuha Finance and the Raver. Okay, I'm driving, so this is just all off the top of my head, digging in the memory banks. But dealing specifically with the Challenger 2, it comes in uh, the 55, 60 ton range. Um, it's very well protected. When I stopped being a super uber tank nerd, uh, only one Challenger 2 had ever been knocked out in combat, and it was back in service in short order order and only the driver had been injured had been hit in the side by an rpg-29 in iraq um, i think one was accidentally knocked out by another challenger uh, but that's not really combat um, it's uh, even with 1990s era fire control it's extremely accurate and operation desert storm was either a challenger one or a challenger two same gun I uh, hit uh, an Iraqi T-72 at almost five kilometers with a Hesh round, which is high explosion squash head, which is a British round designed to cause falling, and knocked it out. Um, the L-11A5 uses two-piece ammunition. It's a rifled gun, so they don't use spin-stabilized rounds. They use spin-stabilized, and uh, the Brits have preferred to use Hesh and, uh, heat rounds over uh, Sabos, but it's, it's a very good tank, very, very well protected. Um, if it can see it, it can hit it, and uh, I just don't know how many of them there are uh, to send. So I'll go back to listening. Thanks, Trevor. Uh, oh, God, we lost our speakers. Uh, Juha? Yes, uh, what I just heard about this uh, patience running out regarding uh, <clears throat> these breaking maneuvers of Scholz and so on. What I've been thinking about past days, that what we are having here is actually a very asymmetrical war where uh, Russia couldn't care less of any international conventions or laws or whatever. And he has weaponized completely the will uh, of the West to comply and do everything by the book. And, you know, and uh, at the moment, for example, if the, the Spain would like to send in these, these tanks and uh, Germany says, no, you won't. What if, if, if we would just, you know, throw the gloves on the ice, so to say, to use ice hockey terms, and just uh, when Spain would say to Germany, hey, okay, you have your opinion, we have ours, and we just send them there and sue us. 
after the war we can deal with with the implications what we okay we're breaking the agreements and whatever just it's it's needed there and we do it now and uh, countries have already done that by the way yeah but but yeah but i i mean that's uh that's absolutely ridiculous to let the west lets putin weaponize our will to comply with all the rules uh, at the same time, he doesn't comply with any. And it, it's a completely asymmetrical situation. Unfortunately, that would also mean that we would, like from ethical and uh, sort of standpoint, sink, uh, well, closer to the level where Putin uh, acts at the moment. But I think that if we just negotiate and discuss and diplomacy and, and are we allowed, are we not allowed? And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's appalling. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that the, I have absolute complete understanding if, 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 the, if some countries say that, hey, that's enough of back and forth. We just do it now. <laughs> and and if, if you have something against it, then let us know afterwards. We have a war to win here right now. People are dying. OK, thanks. Sorry. I, well, that went in the wrong direction. But uh, I just this with the Roman that that just broke the dam in my head. And I. I I think now now it's enough of discussions and now it's enough of, of diplomacy and and uh, negotiating and pondering back and forth and making promises. And if the Ukrainians, for example, have made some strategies how to proceed on, on a high level, counting on the, the, the uh, aid and support which was, which was uh, told that they would get, and they have made their strategies and advances and, and plans according to that. Okay, we get these guns and we, the, these and these countries have promised this and this. And now, if they are just let there alone, it's absolutely unbearable situation. They have completely been, been uh, let run against the wall. And they have been completely let down. It's appalling, really. And I, now, now I think that the countries who have something to give should give it, regardless what Schultz says. Fuck him. Oh, sorry. But <laughs> you get my point. I'm done. As uh, just was said, and Sundbred is right, there are many countries also, on the other hand, who in Europe have said that they are willing to re- uh, deliver um, Leopard 1s and Leopard 2s. Some, and uh, sorry, only one so far has come out of the woodwork. I think it needs a few more voices. Finally. I have a question for you, Axel, and then I actually have a comment uh, after that. Uh, My first question for you um, is, given the lack of support um, and straight blocking of aid to Ukraine, as seen by your prime minister, uh, and knowing not too much about your political system, uh, what is his term limit or what are the mechanics by which uh, the, the... democratic system in Germany uh, could pressure or when is his term up? Like, what's that look like? He just won an election last autumn. So technically he has a good four years. Uh, The other thing is that we do have, actually, if um, a government evidently has no majority and has lost the trust uh, to lead, then in such instance, we have uh, the uh, mechanism of the so-called constructive no-confidence vote. There's a reason for it. Because we did have, in the Weimar Republic, we had no-confidence votes, which then just led the respective president to um, 
appoint another government. The constructive no confidence vote ingrained in the German constitution requires that parties not just show, say that they have no confidence in the current chancellor, but that they immediately form a coalition. This is for the continuity of democracy and the Republic an absolute necessity. I think it's a very good instrument in the system of German government. What's the German term? This... Sorry. What's the German term for that? Constructives, constructives misstrauensvotum. Constructive okay. no confidence vote. And this has been used effectively and very successfully so by Helmut Kohl and Otto Graf Lambsdorff. Helmut Kohl for the as the leader of the Christian Democrat and Christian Social Union at that point in time, uh, as uh, co-joined factions in the German Bundestag, and <clears throat> Otto Graf Lambsdorff and his compatriots at the, um, within the Free Democrats in 1982, in order to relieve uh, the chancellor who, ha who had lost essentially the support of his own party, Helmut Schmidt, and had lost uh, the support of his co coalition partner in the... Um, left liberal coalition between the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats, he had lost their trust. And Otto Graf Lambsdorff had pushed within the Free Democrats to rein in the stagflation uh, and slightly defeatist and rather left-wing uh, and aimless Social Democrats at that point in time, uh, who were also not willing to support uh, NATO, by the way. Um, and uh, he then pushed for a more free market and liberal um, economic approach to lead Germany out of the late stagflation of the uh, sorry the stagflation of the late seventies, and so a government uh, coalition was formed by the two parties, ahead of that uh, no confidence vote, and this constructive no confidence vote immediately relieved Helmut Schmidt, and immediately put a working government with a program in place. Now this constructive uh, no confidence vote was then also followed because. It, um, the media challenged it, the Social Democrats challenged it, and so on and so forth, led uh, to a re-election campaign in 1983, which Helmut Kohl and uh, Otto Graf Lambsdorff won in a landslide. So there is this instrument, it does exist, and yes, there is a possibility that uh, this could be used again. We actually, in this space, I've highlighted this, I think it's about eight weeks ago, and uh, we've discussed it in the run-up to Easter, and there is a necessity to relieve this specific chancellor and his clique of their current engagement in the government, because they're acting in a, due to their um, specific agenda, their delay, their procrastination, their failure to communicate whatever they're doing, and their failure to make decisions effectively, they are tarnishing the image of the country. They are deconstructing what has been built up in terms of trust in the West since 1949. They are tarnishing Germany's involvement in NATO because don't forget after the 100 billion Zeitenwende change of times speech, this government has failed to deliver. It has only gone through its shopping list and now Mr. Saskia Esken, a leading figure in the social democratic movement uh, ideological as she is, has even said that, oh, of course, Germany would not be able to fulfill the 2% criteria. I think Sir Britt and his compatriots know very well what I'm speaking about, because the 100 billion are completely irrelevant. They're nice to have, but they're irrelevant. This is just essentially um, getting, say, addressing very, very small parts of the backlog, but it's not what really matters. 2% as a minimum 
of the German GDP is a significantly bigger number. And that is a completely different thing. If you tally this up for the next 10 years, therein lies a solution for a proper, sensible military budget to uh, be consistent with the economic strength and capacity and therefore also the responsibility of Germany. So if you go for that, that is your instrument. This is what you can do. That is what requires, what needs to be done. And yes, there is a possibility that the so uh, that uh, the conservatives, together with at least one party in the current coalition, and it seems that the Free Democrats are not willing because they are too small and they have failed. Um, and there's an in there's a battle within the Free Democrats between the current finance minister, who by himself made the decision to enter into the Social Democrat Green Free Democrat coalition to attain power. Um, that failure um, cannot be mitigated easily, but he may just be swept aside by a completely no coalition. So, there you go. Or, perhaps, because this did not happen, this uh, constructive uh, no-confidence vote. Not yet. Not yet, and did not ha happen the last two months. Uh, I suspect that's a role-playing Uh, of uh, different parties in Germany, that the main issue is uh, energy energy delivery from Russia, the uh, gas pipeline uh, through the Nord Stream uh, One pipeline, because our uh, business model is totally dependent on gas, cheap gas, and Uh, export with high uh, loans and high um, yes it's, it's my suspicion about this no. well we discussed this in quite some detail in week from week three onwards on the space that uh, the industrial uh, setup of Europe is based on certain industries which are very dependent on natural gas at this point in time Uh, the European economy and uh, is intertwined, and Germany and Germany's chemical industry, meaning everything which creates plastics, by the way, is absolutely vital for Europe. So you cannot destroy that. If you destroy the economy, you deliver Europe to Putin and his cronies. That's the whole point, and I think the strategic imagery is very clear in that regard. So uh, this is not how it goes, and you can't change it as quickly as we would want to because the strategic mistakes have been undertaken in the past. We are currently living with these mistakes, and we have to phase them out. Fortunately, despite the failures of this government, at least that part is being addressed. But uh, finally... Yes. Um, I wanted to bring up that, again, we are having a rough day in the markets here in the U.S. Um, this, is, uh, this is also occurring globally. Um, we are seeing both higher than expected, wrong words, we are seeing higher than previous inflation at the same time as we're seeing markets go down. And the Fed, at least here, is raising rates as are a number of different central banks to combat inflation. Um, this applies to Ukraine because, well, When markets are um, dying, and especially bond markets, this will affect the real economy. So we're going to be in a world where we are supporting a war at the same time as we are facing a recession or something similar to it. This is not just going to be contained to Wall Street at this point. Um, we have enough destruction for that. So I would like to remind people of a couple of things that I've been saying a lot here lately. Uh, stopping genocide does not 
supporting genocide does not stop inflation. The Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting this war if we don't send them heavy weapons. To be fair, the Polish, the Baltic nations aren't going to stop sending them weapons until they stop fighting, period, because they have pure moral clarity and they know what Russia is going to do, which is genocide. And Ukraine isn't going to, when you're fighting genocide, if they don't have heavy weapons, they'll fight with light arms, they'll fight with guns. If they don't have guns and Russians take their cities, they'll fight with knives in the fucking streets because it's genocide. You don't have a choice, right? We just had a hear, heard about a 24-year-old gentleman who I only had the pleasure of knowing as a, as a basic listener in this space and sometimes speaker, and many people here were his friend. Sadly, I can report that as far as I can tell, his dying wish was for more artillery systems for his country. He's 24. When you're 24, you should be spending your time trying to get a job, start a career, and you know find somebody to have intimate relations with. Like, that's what 24-year-olds are supposed to be doing. He's been spending his time fighting a war, getting shot at, and eventually, you know, paying the ultimate sacrifice so his nation could survive and that he could live for freedom and democracy. And what was his dying wish? It wasn't, hey, my family. It wasn't this. It was, hey, can we get more artillery so we can fight harder and longer and win? Like, that in and of itself is beautiful, and it's absolutely depressing to me. And... Uh, you know, I, I, I think the world of Roman, and I think that when that's what you're looking at, you know, we need to be unwavering and tell people to be unwavering. And if people say, well, what's it cost? Be like, well, what's it cost to lose? Because Russia's going to stay under embargo, right? It's not like the excess inflation that comes from this war helps. And again, it pulled this out of a recession once in the 1940s when we supported a war in Europe. Even before we jumped into the war against the Nazis, something which if we had moral clarity, we would have done sooner. Skipping that for a moment. Even before we jumped in, just revving up our manufacturing capacity to send a bunch of weapons to fight an evil genocidal nation happened to help our economy. So even if people aren't accepting that you should stop a genocide because it's important to stop a genocide, you can point out that it's also good for the economy. I don't care how it gets done the amount of unwavering support needs needs to occur and uh yeah i i am uh very touched by you know having had the, the pleasure of, of speaking with uh with roman of uh, now of blessed memory and uh, that's that's all i've got to say for the day i think that's uh, that's pretty much right on the money quite literally ralph i have a question about moldova if there is a danger that Russia exceeds to the west to um, Odessa and then uh, connects to Moldova, uh, why isn't Moldova inviting some military from another country? This is allowed from UN Charter, I know. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to tackle this. Vic, come up. Vic, Vic, Vic. Okay, simple enough. Maybe he'll show up. So, uh, Moldova has a very specific, very special situation legally. Uh, the country split, first of all, uh, when it comes to, you know, politically, let's say, between people who believe Russian propaganda and, and others. Um, but also politically, it's kind of untenable in Moldova. Moldova has really strong sort of neutrality clauses and uh, there cannot be a military invited into Moldova without major sort of shifts domestically. I'm saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's hard. 
Uh, and it's really not straightforward. And while the president, the current president, Maya Sandu, is doing a really good job balancing all of the uh, different problems and, and trying to do the best for Moldova in the long run, getting a foreign military into Moldova, I mean, they have one foreign mini military already, right? The Russian military, in, in, uh, mostly on okay, the left bank of the Dniester. explaining to me. Thank you. I'm, I'm really, yeah, it's, it's a really tough situation. Uh, Vic, please come up and explain this properly. Uh, sorry, we have Vic, who's a regular here, uh, who's from Moldova. He knows this a lot better than I do. But basically what I gave you are the cliff notes, the, the, the summary of, of the situation. It's just really hard. Uh, so, Britt, if you want to add to this, uh, feel free. Absolutely. Yeah, just to pass a comment. Uh, admittedly, I haven't studied the situation in, in Moldova well, but I... I do know that uh, the UK is in discussions with the Moldovan government um, over a lot of different things. Um, I believe it was publicly announced that the UK was considering arming Moldova, um, but there is there's a lot deeper discussions going on, um, you know, about Moldova's security and its ability to be able to defend itself against potentially a Russian attack. Uh, of course, it shouldn't come to that because. Russia won't get through Ukraine, but um, but yeah, I just kind of wanted just to, to say that um, I'm not privy to those conversations in the slightest. I just know that it's happening, and I know there's, there's a lot of delegates from the UK MOD who have been speaking to the Moldovan government, and I know it's been on quite a wide range of topics, so um, I just kind of want to just throw that in. Nick, you're yeah, I'm trying to get... connecting. If you can hear us, please restart. I, I dropped him down and invite him again. Um, uh, he's uh, yeah. We're trying to get Vic up. Vic, try to try don't to connect again. Don't invite him. Seemingly, don't invite. Uh, just send him a message. He should exactly the request because today we have issues with a number of people who are invited, and then they can't actually process the invite. I, I'm sorry. I wanted to additionally give a missing part. Uh, to a discussion, more like a fun now, like a joke. Uh, it was a discussion about Peter the Great, and he uh, it introduced the potatoes to Russia, as like a German uh, the Great, Friedrich the Great. He uh, introduced the potatoes also. So I suggest that the missing part here is Peter the Great Potato. Just like a, fair, <laughs> a joke. So Vic just uh, confirmed that he will restart his phone and come back up. In the meantime, Smert. Smert. Smert for him. Oh, sorry, guys. I didn't know it oh, was yeah, me. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Smell, not smelt. I apologize. I was... No worries. Sorry. No worries. It's fine. Uh, yeah, sorry. I was out for a couple of days. I was busy with something. Uh, nothing much in regards to the discussion that is happening now because I'm not in the know. But in regards to my brother, small update. Um, how to say? He was wounded. He was transferred a couple of times because the hospitals are full, uh, found the bed now, had four operations, currently stable, you know, we're trying to figure out some surgeon and other connections, but uh, just to keep you updated. High morale, smiling as always. So, you know, just a reminder <laughs> that while we hear, you know, discussing, which is good, and making jokes, which is awesome, more jokes, uh, you know, hospitals are full and people are hurt. And as we now know with Roman, people are also dying every day, just to keep it in mind. Thank you, guys.
Thank you, Smith for Ham. Uh, Vic, did I hear right that you connected? I switched to a different phone now, so uh, I think I missed a part of the conversation. So if you can maybe, what what can I? Uh, oh, so the, the question Ralph had is really simple. Um, with you know Russia threatening Moldova and say if Russia got through Ukraine through Odessa towards Moldova or otherwise tried to expand its uh, reach beyond Transnistria, uh, could Moldova bring in you know foreign troops to help, uh, just like UN UN Charter allows, basically. Yeah, so but again, the, the top of the kind of the leaders of the current government at like the presidency, the, kind of the ministries, they, they kind of understand the danger and they're trying it like they had the discussion with Macron, with the UK, I guess, and they're trying to prepare. So basically, we, we cannot stand just we see the danger. My days in Moldova for like after the fall of Soviet Union, it has been like used again and again, but yeah. Neutrality is going to defend us. Neutrality is going to defend us. Again, we had the war with Transnistria. So basically, it's almost like what happened in Ukraine. The army on purpose has been kept at minimum, uh, like very, very low development. So even if uh, Transnistria would have attacked, I think the Moldavian army would have struggled. Uh, it was like, yeah, basically something along this line. Um, but what I've seen lately is, um, yeah, the diplomacy got very active. They are looking for options. Uh, the Minister of Defense, they're requesting like specific parts, like they need like javelins, they, they see what what works against Russian army. Where, uh, so basically, and I've seen like, again, uh, authorities, like uh, some general from US, and he's like, uh, uh, yeah, I've seen uh, basically they're trying to, I guess, map it out, just understand better, like what's, what's the status and where, I guess, the most impact can be made. So far, I haven't seen any evidence of like um, any sort of arms being uh, uh, transferred over. I think they're just uh, trying to prepare the ground in case it's needed. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, I'm not sure how they're acting in terms of like timing, uh, but yeah, this is kind of a contact. Uh, from a population point of view, this is like a quite sensitive uh, and uh, a, pop a lot, a significant chunk of the population in Moldova has been under the uh, you know, influenced by the disinformation campaigns from Russia. And that's why I think people are going to prot protest. Uh, yeah, and now the situation is very hard and they're kind of linking. But yeah, I get the Russian propaganda pushes that everything is like Ukraine's or NATO's fault, blah, 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 things like this. So in this context, the government tries to balance everything. And uh, yeah, I, I guess more or less this is kind of a situation. Thank you, Vic. Basically, in yes, other words, it's really hard to Parker do. Hi. Um, so, coming back to an earlier discussion, uh, briefly, uh, there is, in the UK, there are um, around 300 Challenger 2s uh, in deep storage, which have no prospect of being upgraded to the Challenger 3 stack. We're only planning on updating... Uh, I think 167 uh, of our 500 some odd uh, Challenger 2s, and I'm, you know, Challenger 2's got some some pretty serious shortcomings, but it's better than anything that either the Russians or Ukrainians have, and I'm wondering if those should not be sent. That was funny enough for not those numbers, but still. That was one of my arguments. 
and I represent it today. So, Britt, maybe you can say something about the deep storage. Mike, check. I'm clear. I'm clear. Um, so, yeah, like I, I tried to sort of reference that before when I talked about warehouses filled with things that we don't, but the MOD doesn't always publicly acknowledge um, or announce um, as part of a, a judicial thing, anyways. Um, but I think this is definitely something that will be explored i can't say that it that it would happen or something that we we could do it like i said there is there is strategy discussions that are taking place there's new philosophies um about where our aims should be i talked a little bit about the pacific and about the sort of reignition of um european security so i can't speak to it um i imagine that by the end of this year we'll know a lot more about if the UK plans to take a strategical change in direction or plans to expand operations in Europe. And this may require the UK to want to keep a hold of more of its uh, main battle tanks. So I just, it's, I think, I think our best option is for the UK to use its influence to pressure nations into giving over what can already be given at the easy disposal. Uh, but I definitely think that the question of perhaps handing over some of the Challenger 2s is a discussion that probably has already happened at some levels. Um, I'm not aware that I'm not part of the Challenger program in the slightest, um, but I, I just think it needs a bit more time for, for that one. Um, I think that there's still a lot of discussions that are happening in the strategic, in the strategic command level on operations and perhaps a change in direction, and that, that might require different things. So... Uh, it's it's a it's an easy question, but it's a deep answer, if that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you very much. John. John Howard. Okay, maybe John's busy for a second. Uh, shall we go to uh, name on the trophy? Name on the trophy. Hi, Darwin. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, just obviously uh, distraught with the news of Roman. Um, I just looked at the tweet in the nest. Um, from Olga, and on the wall behind Roman is the words Rini Ama Ohid, and I've just done a little tweet. Uh, it's actually a song in Welsh, um, and it means we're still here, which is strong and poignant. I've done a tweet with a link to the video of the song from a recent football match, and also the words in Welsh with a translation in English as well, so it might be just for people to take a moment and listen to the song and the meaning behind it. And I think it's quite poignant at this time. Thanks. Thank you, Damon, the trophy. Um, actually, I, I just saw it because I uh, had a look at what you recently posted. And it's, uh, I, I advise everyone, just as name did, uh, to go check it out. At least read it. John, if you can hear me, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I, I dropped out for a minute then. Um, well, first of all, obviously, condolences to all of you who knew or were involved with Roman. Um, clearly he touched a lot of people um, and it's always it's always sad to lose somebody you know. Um, and I think when there's when there's so many people dying, sometimes you know it, it takes the death of an individual um, to bring the the reality the reality of it back down to people. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't um, what I came to speak about. I, I've been in and out all day. I just wondered has anybody um, discuss the disappearance of Navalny. No, no, no one has. Um, just for anybody who hasn't heard, Navalny was moved from his prison to somewhere else, and nobody really knows where to. Um, I think that you know, despite Navalny being 
an opposition leader. We don't particularly enjoy discussing him because his main uh, policy difference with Putin is that Navalny thinks Navalny should be in power instead, and all the rest are relatively marginal. So um, it's like, yeah. Oliana? Just three short sentences because I don't really want to dwell on it. First of all, the fact that he's a position doesn't mean that he's much better. Second of all, certainly doesn't mean he's much better for Ukraine because some of his kind of statements on Crimea and on kind of use of derogatory terms towards Ukrainian are kind of documented on Twitter. Third of all, he's been known for his kind of part of in imperialistic marches in Moscow where he kind of marched with a flag of Russian Empire and he had like hard time washing officers. I still think he hasn't. So be really careful while kind of glorifying or putting kind of your hope with Navalny because again, he's not much better if you actually kind of delve into his kind of policies and some of his statements. So for example, recently he said that one man in Bucha was killed because his surname was Navalny and basically made the death of that man about himself. So kind of very interesting how would Navalny kind of explain the death of like hundreds of like many other um, uh, civilians that were like brutally killed by Russians for nothing. So again, uh, we don't really like to discuss Navalny here again because we don't really hope he's the kind of opposition that will kind of um, restore Russia or something like this. I don't know. Oh, anyway. I'll add a little bit to this just to say that I, you know, John clearly didn't uh, glorify Navalny in any way or anything like that. And we, we know that. Uh, it was just uh, countering what we should be, you know. We've previously heard from lots of other people who aren't nearly as well informed as I know John is. Uh, but I, I do think it's a, it's a big story. Uh, it's just difficult to discuss because obviously none of us know where he is or what happened. Right, John? Sure. Uh, and apologies, apologies if, if I caused any offence. I hold no brief for the man. Not, uh, not even in the slightest, John. We're just, um, you know, for the benefit of the rest of the audience is what we said. Okay, well, I mean, the, the reason I thought it was interesting, I, um, I tweeted, I think, on the, on the, the second day of the war, um, that I thought if he were to disappear, that that would be a good combat indicator that potentially there was there was trouble brewing internally um and that putin would at that point um would move to dispatch um any potential uh axis of opposition now clearly he's behind bars we don't know what's happened to him um but i just i, I thought it was interesting purely from uh, the perspective that it may indicate something else um but obviously with, with nobody knowing where he is or what's happened yet um, that's very difficult to say, but it, I, I thought it was just a point of note that was that was potentially interesting. But anyway, I concur, it. John. Absolutely concur. This is the the, the uh, one interesting lens through which to to view this. What you just highlighted. So we're you know, we're we're on the same page here for sure. Um, yeah, if we learn anything more, uh, I, I'm sure it will be interesting to track it for many people, and I'm sure we'll discuss it as soon as we know some more, uh, including with you, John, of course. Uh, Uliana and I just wanted to clear for the clear it up for the rest of the audience before anybody gets it, you know, too sad about Navalny. Let's say, uh, the, maybe your your empathy uh, could be better placed elsewhere. Because um, I I'm well aware that John is exceptionally well informed about all matters, international relations and military. So you know, it's uh, again it was for <laughs> everyone else, not everyone else. For let's say sixty percent of our audience. Um, 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to come up and speak, click that request button in the bottom left corner of your screen. Otherwise, we can't bring you up because otherwise we don't know that you want to say something. Uh, Kafteli, you've been up for a while. You've not said anything yet. Um, the, that's, that goes against uh, my lived experience, let's say. Kafteli, go right ahead. <laughs> Thank you. It, it is funny. So, yeah, if I show up, I... Um, I need to say something. Okay. Yeah, I, I was, you know, there was a question about Moldova, and I think it also relates to Georgia. And um, so why are they not doing this or why are not they doing that? <clears throat> I'll, I'll be very direct. Uh, they are watching world leader, you know, and kind of, so they are looking at Schultz and then try to, okay, well, if Schultz shows resolve if macron shows resolve if draghi shows resolve they will also show resolve um well if they are more concerned about you know putin's face putin's other parts of the body then uh, they will act the same and the same with so-called georgian government they uh, i would not take them seriously they are uh, just placeholder it's a result of um Reset, uh, which was kind of an agreement between Russia and U.S. back to, I think, 2011. Uh, when Saakashvili had to step down, um, there was like elections or imitations of elections where Russia was heavily involved, much more heavily than in U.S. in 2016, much more heavily. So a pro-Russian so-called uh, politician came to power and uh, is running informally the country till today. He has his puppets in the government whose only purpose is to serve their master, who is this informal uh, uh, informal uh, ruler of the, of the country. Um, and now EU is considering... So it's actually interesting what they will... On one thing, on one hand, they do not want to punish Georgian people who want to join EU. On the other hand, they want to punish Russians too, uh, oligarch. And um, I'm very curious what kind of decision will be. But I would not take seriously any declaration of Georgian government because mostly they are talking about, you know, peace and uh, cooperation and, you know, unicorns and um, like love, whatever. But uh, the former president, who is the reformer, <clears throat> actually one of the act most active reformer in the post-Soviet country, who was called beacon of democracy at some point, is in prison. Um, and yeah, that, that's what we get. Uh, but uh, getting back to question, why is Moldova not doing anything? Uh, again, guys, they are looking at world leaders. Look, you yourself look at world leaders and you make sure. So whenever world leader is doing A, everybody's uh, people are, most of people just align with the winners. You know, if you want to, uh, if you want somebody to align with you, like be a leader, behave like a leader. If you behave like a, um, like a shame, then uh, don't expect, uh, you know, somebody else to, like, of course, Moldova cannot be ahead of Germany or France or Italy 
in European affairs. It is delusional if you expect that. Now, Ukrainians are the only one that are fighting Russians as of today. Maybe not by choice, but by necessity. But like Dimitar Impera, it's not a, a new slogan. It's a quite old one. Uh, Russia will, you know, they are sending different messages to different rulers. Basically, uh, you know, if you remove all the glamour and everything, uh, the, the idea is, wait your turn, we'll get, get to you. It's, um, but it's, it, it takes guts to realize that this is only a matter of time and stand up today and support Ukraine. It takes guts. And uh, most of governments do not have guts. And world, world leaders do not have guts. We have gutless leaders. We have spineless leaders. So don't expect that this whole thing may actually go um, very wrong, very quick. Um, so was that inflammatory enough? <laughs> but you all know that's the truth, right? Um, it's, uh, yeah, the free world needs a leader. We do not see them yet. Uh, Zelensky is, but he needs weapon. Uh, and weapons are somewhere in the warehouses, somewhere else, um, in the hands of people who may or may not even know how to use them. Like, and I'm not talking about U.S., they have army. I'm talking about like nations whose army is uh, like a uh, topic of joke of their own people. Like uh, when I visit, I was once uh, staying in the... Um, in the line uh, in Paris for Eiffel Tower, you know, and there were three young people, you know, talking about, they, they were making fun of French army, making fun. And um, when you have a leader like Macron, uh, you, what, what do you expect of the army? Like the best they can do is fight somewhere, a tribe that has only stones and uh, and buttons, uh, or how you call it, uh, sticks and stones. Yeah, may maybe they can do something there, but um, standing up to Russia? No, 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 that's, that's too much. Don't expect them to do that. They even fear to give enough weapon to Ukrainians, who are the only one willing to fight and ready to fight, and fighting it without weapon just gives them bloody weapon. They will do your job for you and protect you, goddammit. But, um, yeah, they, um, it's much more convenient to do business with Russia, buy oil for them, and make sure that cooking oil does not go 3% up. That's how they view the, how they live. And, um, and hence the results. Again, the war can be ended in one week if Ukrainians have 300, maybe 200 MRL. And... Uh, I'm pretty sure in in deposit warehouses, maybe not 200, but maybe 100, but they are stay, staying there for, for a decade, you know, with no you. And what kind of world, are, like, who do you think will be protecting the world if this is the time when it's up to, like, up to the free world to protect itself? And what are we seeing? The third conference now, and we cannot ship the and even when we ship four of them we started uh, talking you know can they shoot at russians in russia or can they shoot like who is doing that anyway um yeah it was too long 
Sorry about that. No, Cartelli, it, actually, no, you're right. It was about three sentences too long. You should have finished on what was the thing that you said and then made a pause. It was really strong and really excellent. You should have finished on that one. So we liked it then, but now I forgot what it was. Do you remember? Someone has to remember. So that's real politic, fielding the crocodile, hoping that he, you will be the last that he will eat. That's, Maybe. Um, and I can understand France is the last in the, in the line. You know, it, it will take a while for Russians to keep La Manche, but it doesn't mean they won't get there. It doesn't mean that. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, Kharteli, did you see my message yesterday or this morning, rather? I did, but like I don't take the guy seriously. He was claiming that for the last nine years he was doing reforms. For nine, uh, last nine years he was servicing his master, who is uh, himself the slave of Putin, um, and uh, that's all he is doing. I, I don't take him seriously. You know, he would not be a good for maybe a pizza delivery is uh, his level. You know, he can't uh, i i don't think he even speak any language he doesn't have have neither education but hell with the education he doesn't have guts he he's a serviceman he's a serviceman uh, for his master um, and uh, he begins every of his speech and ends it with a thank you master like thank you batono bizina batono bizina means her bizina bizina is the name of this this guy, it's a Georgian name, but in Russia, he's known as Boris. So thank you, Herr Boris. Uh, that was his speech. You know, that's all he... And uh, you know, when uh, Ivanishvili was talking about, because he was afraid of getting under sanctions, and he will get his sanctions. And when I was saying how this will uh, work out, it's interesting, you know. So on Friday, there will be kind of decision about Ukraine. And I think Moldova and Georgia too. And I think uh, they are trying to figure out now how to, on one hand, not punish people of Georgia, but punish their informal ruler, you know. And, um, and government will be squeezed. And now this government is saying, oh, for last nine years, uh, we were doing reforms. They were not doing reforms. They were not doing anything. They were servicing their master. And they were like, uh, actually... Well, walking back the reforms done by their predecessor, uh, and their only, only reason to be there is not to provoke Russia, which is, in all fairness, is the message they receive from Macron's and Schultz and uh, and Merkel's and uh, Draghi's and uh, Berlusconi's and all those uh, leaders of so-called. Uh, so-called leaders of the free world, which is still free by some uh, by some miracle, I don't know. Um, yeah. So no, I'll 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 finish this one if that's okay. Yeah, which is free because of the sacrifice of good young men, such as Roman. Okay. Um, let's go to 1776, and then Miladiu, and then Mercola. 1776. Thank you very much. Um, as I always preface when I'm going to disagree uh, with somebody, I'd like to begin uh, by acknowledging the extreme duress that I understand so many people who are part of this forum that I love very much are going through. And then all of the sacrifice that is being taken place and the injustice that is being inflicted upon Ukraine and its people 
and how incredibly difficult it is to live through it. Being a former serviceman, I, I can appreciate it. But, you know, having had family who has lived through similar occupations in France and many other countries, I can appreciate just the the complete anxiety, disgust, fear. Uh, it's incredible. And it's not something that I would wish on anybody. That being said, countries act in their best interests. We may not always agree about what that utility is. We always believe that people should rise to the best and stand on moral and ideological grounds. And sometimes we as humans do, and sometimes we believe that what we define as utility overrides what we believe the moral or ideological response should be. The anger that is being put onto France and some of the the things that are being said about the French military, the German military, are completely unfounded. And as an ally of those countries, frankly, disgust me. The French and the Germans stood by us in Afghanistan and to a much lesser degree in Iraq for the past 20 years. That assistance was courageous by the men and women on the ground, at sea, and in the air. So, to paint entire countries because you disagree with their policies as cowardly, as inept, unprofessional, needs to stop. It's not productive. All you do, instead of winning friends and influencing people, is make enemies and create discontent. What you can do is point towards, and I've heard you do this, and you did it very well, sir, was to say, hey, you're going to be next. The alligator is not your friend. And you may think that you are buying time or forming, you know, uh, some kind of truce or relationship with this person. However, we've seen it time and time again in Munich and many other times where we thought that, you know, there's peace in our time only to be steamrolled again. I agree with that. But these assumptions that the entirety of global democracy are are riding on the number of M270 MLRS that are being sent into Ukraine is preposterous. If Ukraine falls tomorrow, it is a tragedy for Ukraine. It may alter the strategic situation for Europe. However, 